hello, everybody. How are you all? Don't be quiet. <laughs> okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome to day three of AUSA 2016. I'm Colonel Rich Spiegel, the Director of Public and Congressional Affairs at Army Materiel Command. This morning's availability is with the Honorable Katrina McFarland, the Army Acquisition Executive, and General Gus Perna, the 19th Commanding General of Army Materiel Command. The ground rules for this morning were previously briefed, so we'll get started right away with the Honorable McFarland's opening statement, ma'am. Thanks, Rich. Um, so like I said, good morning, everyone. It's been an excellent couple of days. I hope you're feeling the same way about what we're seeing, both from industry and the conversations that are going at these panels. Um, it's really great to be up here with General Perna. Um, he is our future, and I look forward to seeing the things that he's going to bring to our Army. Um, on behalf of all of our Army, when we look at what we're trying to do uh, as a team that you see in front of you, we look at how do we create readiness through life cycle management. Not just the performance, but really the ability for people to operate with the gear that they can operate with simply providing the capability they need to have and making sure it's there when they need it. That's a team effort. That's an Army effort. That's a whole of Army effort. And uh, we've been working uh, for years. Uh, even though I've been with the Army only since the uh, 2nd of February, and it's been quite the honor, uh, a lot of the activity that I brought to the table I had been working on in a previous life at the Office Secretary of Defense. And so one of the challenges that we've been working on for quite some time is life cycle management as a team sport and how do you create the environment that drives in the ideas of from the beginning or conception of a material solution until the time you dispose it. How do you think of measuring that? How do you think of creating that environment? How do you make sure that people's bandwidth isn't consumed because it's such a large enterprise and it's such a large amount of work? And so um, from when Gus was working at the headquarters of the G4 until now, we've been working on something we call transition to sustainment. And what that really is is inside the life cycle management process of which I'm responsible to the secretary and the chief on, I have elements of execution and the skills and the talent I recruit from within AMC. And I'd like to strengthen that relationship and how much and where I recruit uh, from AMC because it is the best interest of the Army, but also to create an ability to manage more succinctly a phase in the life cycle called sustaining activities. And so what we have done as a partnership is we've agreed upon areas inside of the life cycle management that are best suited to be executed by the Army Material Command. And there are effectively eight core business areas, and they've been performing them already. The issue is, how do we create the dynamic that they're effectively the strongest vote at the table? Okay. So in that regard, things like when we build the life cycle management and support plan at the beginning of the program, do we have the right sustaining engineering available and integrated into the program's design, working as we craft that business proposal with industry, so that when the end product comes out, that it is ready and able to be worked by our soldiers. In the best business case, 
that the Army needs at that time. So I'm not suggesting that there isn't always a continuous balance. At certain points, we may sacrifice the performance of the system to be able to create that readiness level that allows us to actually, in the largesse, have a better performance overall because the soldier is more agile and create the ability to be operating on that system quickly. In the other case, we may sacrifice uh, performance is uh, also in terms of reliability an element and well as sustainment. If we take a look at another area that we've done historically, uh, you could see MRAP where we did not take into consideration the, the logistics and that sustaining activity to the rigor we would like to as an artifact of risk that we had to address immediately for our warfighter. So, inelegantly stated, as I am an engineer and therefore imperfect in my English language, I want to stress that the ideas here are not new. They're being codified. They create a more collaborative organization that's focused on a common goal. And what we're trying to do is bring those synergies together as Army whole and focus on our ability to do a better practice of holding ourselves up to a standard, being able to measure how to achieve that, take those business lessons both from the front end to and through to the back end of our life cycle of our programs and our materials and get better outcomes. And so that's today's focus I'd like to share with you today about what we are doing in this area, how can we improve it. Um, also things like divestment come in, divestiture can come into play, um, but the predominant discussion is through the things that we're doing inside of acquisition reform and all of the multi-domain discussions you've heard over the last couple of days, this is an element that's so important to our soldiers and how we do it is going to be very important. So I'm going to pass it to the general and have him have a chance to refresh your memories on what we do and reinforce. Well, thanks, ma'am. Uh, what a great honor and uh, privilege to be the 19th Army Material Command Commander. And uh, as many of you know, I just assumed command on Friday, uh, 1,000 hours, and uh, really a pinnacle for my career and a great honor. And I, I am very grateful for the Secretary and the Chief for allowing me to continue to serve our great Army. Uh, as Honorable McFarland just talked about, I do uh, spend a great deal of time partnered with her and, and uh, ASALT. Uh, it's the collective uh, organizations that help us achieve what we need to do in support of the Secretary and the Chief. In particular, uh, Army Material Command is uh, focused and will we'll, uh, give everything we have on developing and delivering uh, material readiness and support of the commander. We want to make sure we remain the dominant land force as the Chief talked about yesterday and the Secretary the day before. We will do that in three areas. First, it is operationalizing our capability at the tactical, operational, strategic level. And so what I mean by that is how do we take this great mass of organization and bring it across the goal line? How do we ensure that the capabilities that we're providing are the capabilities that are necessary uh, for our soldiers once it hits the battlefield. Uh, as Ms. McFarland just talked about, it's our ability to take it from the beginning to the end, hold ourselves accountable, and make sure we provide. Second uh, priority will be making sure that we are a part of the force modernization process. 
how do we make sure that we are synchronizing, integrating science and technology with research and development so that the right uh, product comes to our soldiers at the right time? And then the last uh, priority for us is making sure our workforce, both military and civilian, is trained and ready. Right? They've done magnificent things over the last 15 years. They will continue to do magnificent things because they're wonderful. But we must make sure that they remain educated, held to a standard, and that their focus is on the soldier that's out in front of the, at the battlefield. So with that, I really look forward to your questions and, and partnering with Ms. McFarland in this. Uh, so Ms. McFarland and General Turner will now take your questions, and we can start over there. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Martin with uh, RedstoneAlabama.com. Questions for you, General Perna. With coming into AMC and with the brand new, where do you kind of see AMC going specifically with modernization? So I, I think underneath the Secretary and the Chief's priorities, um, as uh, highlighted by Honorable McFarland, it will be about us taking our capability, our laboratories, research development engineer command, and focusing our efforts on those priorities so that we can develop the most uh, advanced technology uh, to support the modernization. Uh, and so uh, I, in simple commander terms, it's about priority of effort and focus on the output. Hi, thank you. Lee Drum Greco, Flight Global. Um, Boeing was saying the other day that they're looking at a second iteration of the E model for the Apache or a possible F model. Um, I spoke with um, General Murray's spokesman, and he said that the Army is not looking at a possible F model for Apache as sort of a, um, I guess, bridge to FVL. Um, so you had mentioned investing in S&T. Um, how do you plan on keeping FVL on track so that there doesn't have to be a longer bridge with Apache? Yeah. I, I'm actually going to defer that to Honorable McFarland, if I may. Well, I'd like to set the tone that we are trying to focus, because we have so little time with you, on the transition to sustainment and that life cycle management. But to this point, because it's related to how we do the business, we have a great community inside of AMC that supports our advances in technology. And they are working and have continued to work with industry on things like the FMR and the actual um, FEL. So our efforts will take our resources and balance them to determine how we can make sure we stay abreast of that threat. And the underpinning of that conversation is that last time. One of the things I didn't mention in my opening statement is, is in order for us as a team to be able to provide to, uh, the Army the right equipment at the right time is to understand that threat well enough. And that's where we have to take our limited resources and prioritize. And that's the guiding principle to modernization. And so we will definitely look at what we have to do to increase our capabilities across the spectrum, including aviation, and how that falls out against the threats and where our capes and limbs are, capabilities and limitations. Hi, David Isby here, International. Uh, still on aviation, uh, what changes in acquisition? Everything costs a lot and takes a very long time, and uh, ITEP and FEL are uh, exhibits of that. How can we change this? What are you doing to change this? So, so thank you. Actually, that fits very nicely in our discussion. Um, when you take a look at the life cycle management of a product, you should have the ability to understand from history best practices or failures and how that contributes to your outcomes. And in order to do that, we need to have the ability to measure ourselves. 
And one of the uh, objectives that uh, General Carner and I have is to actually lay in those measures. We started a couple years ago, they began on this process with the JAZZER, which unfortunately we live in acronym soup and I can't joint assessment. Strategic review. Strategic review, bless you. Um, we do uh, had and have continue like our contracting enterprise review to look at how we're doing that business. And so we're going to use a process scrub, if you would, to deliberately assess what are impediments to getting to a swifter closure with a more uh, cogent discussion with industry on what we want to achieve. And that's the entirety of the life cycle. That's creating the right requirement mm -hmm. to actually understanding what does that do to the sustaining and readiness of our troops. So in specific, if we look at our uh, objective of trying to maintain the overmatch, we have to be able to be able to prioritize that and recognize where in our toolkit we have opportunities. And that is the Rapid Capabilities Office, for an example. Uh, it is the use of other than transactions, which are contractual tools that create consortiums and other than transactions that are much more flexible. And so we're looking at the full spectrum of tools. And inside of our readiness, one of the things that we're also looking at is an opportunity to create um, money, if you would, resources to work on uh, balance between that which is the fielded equipment and that which is where we want to invest into our future. And divestiture is a very hot topic within our army. If you want, you can, please. So, uh, you know, we have to look at things not just in one single portfolio. We have to look across all portfolios. And then what through the processes that the Secretary and the Chief have aligned and Ms. McFarland and I are executing is we have to provide them options, right, and uh, allow them to uh, understand the risk so they can make the decisions. Uh, inside of that decision-making process, what we're trying to do is provide information to them that the span of our total programs might not be all, all, all necessary in association with the requirement and the risk on the battlefield. And so we're trying to present um, decisions to them so that they can create space, right, to, to, to advance other programs faster or to delay programs as required depending on the requirement and the risk. Um, and then the tactical piece of that is, is how do we eliminate the excess equipment that's on the battlefield so that we don't waste money uh, trying to maintain it for a requirement that doesn't exist anymore for the just-in-case. Over 15 years of war and great, uh, great acquisition process. For those of you who were in the panel the other day, I'm a huge fan of what we've been doing. Uh, and as a soldier on the battlefield, I received a lot of what I needed and I need, when I needed it, and I'm very grateful. But is that equipment still required on the battlefield? And if it's not, what are we doing with it, right? And, and what are the processes to eliminate it? Uh, and how do we connect new fieldings with elimination of, of, uh, of old equipment? And so it's that whole uh, uh, process that we're looking at to try to really make ourselves better and focused on, on delivering things faster and better. And there was a question over here, then we'll swing back to my far left. Uh, Dan Wasby with Jane. Um, as you're talking about sustainment and, and life cycle costs and improvement and all that, um, General Pernan, I think your, your predecessor was very interested in 3D printing. Yes. So how, I guess specifically, what, what programs or initiatives or things like that are you guys looking at to 
I don't know, add 3D printing to your life cycle solutions or? So uh, I'll begin and I'm, I'm going to ask Ms. McFarland to uh, really catch me up. Uh, <laughs> but truthfully, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate, right? I, I believe that our two greatest things that we can really make advancements are, are robotics uh, and then additive manufacturing. Uh, and I think that there's great strength in additive manufacturing, and I see it being located in two places, quite frankly. I, I think at the strategic level, at the depots, uh, and at Army prepositioned stocks, we can use it to uh, reduce the supply chain requirements and help us ensure uh, that we get, you know, the products moving through our lines in a timely manner. Uh, and I think that would be powerful for us because we have to take the depot workload uh, as I said earlier, really operationalize it to the requirements, connect it to the sustainment readiness model, and I, and I think additive manufacturing will help us there. The second piece is forward. Where do we put it on the battlefield to eliminate uh, supply chain requirements, i.e. put something in a convoy, uh, or reduce the time that it takes to repair something that we know is down? Uh, truthfully, I believe we have to work through that, right? We have to come to um, consensus on the business rules for that. We have to understand the impact uh, to supply chains and, um, uh, and support requirements, and then we have to direct uh, the execution. But those are the two main areas I see where it will be very uh, helpful. Absolutely. And I think uh, in our labs um, right now, there's a lot of discussion about how do I reduce the logistics and maintenance burden on our soldiers through the uses of things like the automated uh, autonomous and additive uh, technologies that are coming out. In fact, if you've been wandering around on the conference floor, you've seen some very neat tools being developed to be able to take a part in the field using a laser and actually recreate it in a graphic form and a computerized form so that I can regenerate it right there with additives. Uh, remarkable improvements that will lessen the exposure of humans to what is uh, an unsafe environment and a threat. And every time you bring an additional person to <coughs> the battle space, there is a huge infrastructure that comes with it. So the more we talk about how we reduce exposure, particularly in that logistics field and in that sustaining and readiness uh, attribute, the better we're creating the environment for our soldiers and where we need them most, which is at, of course, the pointy end of the spear. So as we're looking at things, uh, the reason why we have to have this partnership tighten is because in order for us in the design element through the disposal element to learn and understand that trade space, I need to have the operators those that operate not just the systems, which I have a very tight relationship, but I have to improve as well, I have to understand the logistics world and how that operates from the supply chain. And how does that translate when I look at my design and build? Because that warfighting capability isn't just the fact of a kinetic, it's the warfighting capability that you can mobilize and deliver. Mm -hmm. And since we do everything, God willing, we continue on that offshore, and in another country, we have to think of that in our design and our spend. So if I may just add before we go on, I, I do think, uh, as I talked about, it's really, I think it will be a big part of our future. Um, and I think we have to partner with industry to continue to develop the technology uh, to receive the output we want. 
Uh, as I said, we have to really understand where we want to use it and what are the rules for using it. But also a key attribute uh, that will be necessary in doing so is uh, up front uh, in the acquisition process, we'll have to come to terms with owning the intellectual property. Yeah. For the, for the things that we purchase. Because if we don't own intellectual property, then we won't be able to Absolutely. really utilize that in manufacturing to its fullest capability. Uh, and so, as Ms. McFarland just articulated, our ultimate goal is the readiness of our equipment and ensuring the safety of our soldiers in execution of their mission. Uh, and that's what we really need to be focused on. And when you focus on that and you work left, uh, then things about uh, making decisions about intellectual property become more clearer, and then the use of additive manufacturing becomes more clearer because it reduces footprint uh, and it provides the maneuver commander greater flexibility to do what he needs to do. Absolutely. We'll go to the front over here and work our way back. Hi, John. Hi, Jen Judson with Defense News. I think this is a question for General Perna. Uh, how is the continuing resolution? for the next three months going to affect your command? Did you prepare for that in budgeting, or are you anticipating falling behind in anything you're working on? Okay, so we, we know the basic premise, right? Um, you know, first of all, um, I don't have the right words, but at least they did it. At least we have a CR, right? And, and we're not uh, heading towards government shutdown immediately, right? Because that is catastrophic uh, to our organization. So. But with that said, CR doesn't allow you to expand spending in anything new. It's based on, as the Secretary talked about, our best intellectual thought two years ago, right? And now we're trying to apply it. Uh, and we all know the world is evolving and changing every single day, right? The battlefield, our enemies, uh, they're taking advantage of that. And so what we're working through uh, in uh, Army Materiel Command is just as you uh, asked, okay, what, what, what is good, what do we have to watch out for, and how are we going to mitigate it? Um, and, and truthfully, as um, uh, day four, uh, that presentation is going to be presented to me when I return um, uh, this week so I can understand it. Maybe we can follow up after yeah, you settle absolutely. in. <laughs> Thank Please. you. Okay, we're up here in the middle, and we'll get back over there. Thanks. <clears throat> Courtney McBride with Inside the Army. Um, General Parna, knowing that you're just a few days into to command, I'm just I'm curious to know uh, what you anticipate being your role uh, in the SPAR, the Strategic Portfolio Analysis and Review that the G8 is undertaking. Uh, so I, I, I see myself being a big partner to Honorable McFarland and her team. Uh, and General Murray, of course, will play a large role in that. Uh, but as Honorable McFarland just talked about, you know, it is about working through the entire acquisition process from the life cycle sustainment plan all the way to uh, the divestiture of the equipment. Uh, and so my contributions, I believe, will be incredibly helpful. And I plan to be uh, at the table with her working through that in great detail. I, I see great advantage of this initiative. Um, I, I applaud uh, Ms. McFarland's leadership to bring the two capabilities together. Right? It's about looking at the programs in depth and then understanding uh, how do we create space to give the Secretary and the Chief uh, more maneuver room to bring the right programs in. Uh, and, and I believe, as uh, Ms. McFarland just talked about, I think we have to present, I think the SPAR will allow us to prevent, present information to the Secretary and Chief so they can make decisions.
more importantly, not what we're going to do, but what are we not going to do. Uh, and uh, for us, it's about presenting the information so that they understand, so they have courses of action, they understand the risk, and then they will make the decision and we will execute it. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to be a great initiative. Um, could I uh, just add, how many of you by hand understand the strategic portfolio analysis review? Okay, I'm going to give you a quick snapshot because I think it's important okay. to us all. Um, in terms of what we've been trying to accomplish is to have the ability to state inside of the Army what is our current and upcoming and future, because there's really three main phases in terms of what we have in equipment and capability that we're always dealing with. You can lay on top of that a budgetary system. You can lay on top of that the threat. And then you get into the training and the fielding. And they're all tied to the resource underbelly. And so what we, if you really understand what your trade space is, up to the practice of acquisition actually is pretty mundane. It's just a risk balance. It's the process that overlays the practice of acquisition that gets kind of gooey. And so if you take a look at what the practice requires is that milestone B, we should have the requirements to a very precise enough level to go and contractually bind to a product that we intend to deliver. So it's almost the loaf and the recipe has been chosen. We're going to make, uh, we'll choose the holiday pumpkin bread, and we're going to know exactly how long it's going to bake, and we know effectively what the ingredients are, and we're going to progress forward. So up to B, we're not really sure if we're going to have a dessert or a main course. And that product that we're working on from up to and inclusive of B is our future, 2025 and beyond, if you were to take the instance of today. But once you get to B, that's effectively the period of time that's going to be up to 2025. But what really has the largest investment is after you fielded it. And that's really in the sustainment. It's the equipment that we've got that we're operating on now. That's the largest investment that we have. And so if you look at the three pools of money, what you care about for today's site, fight tonight, what's tomorrow's site, but almost tomorrow, like really close to us tomorrow, and then the future site, there are three pools of investment, and you need to be able to present to the senior leadership that trade space associated with risk, hence the threat progression and understanding it, relative to the training and the readiness that you need to fight today with. And that should be presented in a form that the corporate leadership understands what they're doing and can be more articulate in presenting to the public, Congress, and ourselves what their risk is that they're taking with that investment. Because if you look at the do dollar figure on the bottom line, it looks huge. But if you don't understand how it's being invested, you don't actually understand that risk. And that's what the FAR is about. Yeah, it's taken gooey and applying standards and discipline. That's what, I, that's what I'm really I'm excited about, quite frankly. So there's a question in the middle here. Hi, Vivian Mashi with National Defense Magazine. Uh, Ma'am, you talked over the past couple of days about the need to unburden our soldiers, and I was wondering if you could provide any update on the efforts to lighten body armor, um, what, what updates you have, and if you've seen anything, any opportunities, whether on the floor or elsewhere, um, to fulfill that goal. Thank Absolutely. You. The Army is a, 
amazingly diverse entity when it comes to not only the science and technology skills, but also the corporate knowledge that it has right now to bear on a problem. And so, as I was uh, referring to, and as the general was talking about, the insight into the readiness, that is the actual uh, operating forces capability, has two pieces to it, that, that which is the tactical and that which is the infrastructure that provides for it. And the two have to have an intersection, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about creating readiness. And that is looking at how do I shorten the timeline to get our guys trained with that equipment and recycle them back into the battle. And while they're in the battle, making it simple enough, this is really hard, but it's very important, simple enough to maintain and sustain without having to have a reliance on an infrastructure that's going to have to be there in order to be successful. You can't get to perfect. There's going to be trades within that. It's affordability-driven while it's also technology-driven and other things. But that's what we're trying to look at is unburdening the soldier. The soldier is our pointy spear. We don't have ships. We don't have planes. We have soldiers. And in order to do that, we have to think in that parameter of what some young 18-year-old wet, cold, and in a foxhole is worried about, and what did I create for him to worry more about? And that's the hard problem. So if I create something that takes 22 steps for him to go through on an electronic system before he can get to go, I have failed him. If I have a system that's out there and I have to set up a radar, and I have to find the perfect setup where somebody's actually, like if you remember the old dog ears on TVs, but you all look far too young for this. But anyways, we used to stand up and hold a wire out the door so Dad could watch the football game. Well, if I have to do that with a radar while people are getting shot at because I haven't really constructed something that can sustain against what is the actual environment, I've, I've failed. So that's the part that we're working on, and we're working diligently on it. We're creating tools like for radar, so I'll talk about that for a moment, which is something called the probe. The probe says if I take it and I stand away from it, I can tell you by actually surveying where is the best setup for that radar inside of that environment so people don't have to keep moving around. Sounds simple, but if you don't think about it, it's not there when you need it. I'm wanting to take, and we're working towards a common interface standard interface not as something to plug in, but the soldier to machine interface for how I dynamically operate here. Yeah, I know you've got a long time. So, so. so I just, again, uh, and I said it the other day, but um, uh, we've done a lot of great things. The community has done a lot of great things. And I just would remind you, you know, as I crossed the border in 2003, it was soft skin Humvees. 2006, all of our equipment was up armored. 2010, on my third tour, we were driving MRAPs. No other country in the world could do that. Our acquisition capability did that. And the same things occurred with, uh, when I crossed the border in 2003, I was wearing the same flak vest that they wore in Vietnam, right? And then each tour, it got lighter and more mobile, right, uh, to execution. Same thing in communication, same thing with ammunition, uh, and the same thing with our radar capability. So, Quite frankly, I'm very proud of what we've achieved. Uh, does that mean we've uh, gotten through the goal line? No. We have to keep advancing as Mr. McFarland just talked about. Uh, and that requires continued support, uh, consistent funding, 
uh, predictable funding so that we can make the necessary plans to develop and then produce what we need for our soldiers. But with that said, I'm, I'm pretty proud of what we've done collectively. Okay, you haven't had one yet in the middle row? Hi, Ellen Mitchell with Politico. Uh, Ms. McFarland, you told me on Monday that you will be retiring November 1st. So what do you think you can get finished in this very short amount of time? And has uh, General Perna and those on the Rapid Capabilities Office uh, Board of Directors um, spoken at all with your replacement? Oh, yeah. So uh, thank you. Um, I realized after I saw a press article I probably should have been a little clearer. <laughs> So I am retiring. Um, it will be uh, natural anyway because the administration, this position is political. But the person who I have right behind me is a permanent civilian. Her name is Stephanie Easter. And Stephanie is the person who, uh, under the Vacancy Act, which is the law, and it's a very uh, convoluted law, but it's the law, uh, she will rise up and have full uh, authorities, the same authorities I have, until a new administration or nomination and a confirmation comes into this position. So there will be continuity. But if the underpinnings of the questions are, how can you continue this, I assure you, and I can say this personally, it's not an individual who accomplishes those broad things that we talked about. It's an enterprise. The enterprise has to believe in it. The enterprise has to be held to it to ask itself how it's going to achieve it. And that's my role that I've been playing out because it wasn't just me who came in with these concerns. It was the secretary. It was the chief. It was the vice. It was the secretary of defense, like in the contracting area. So my ability, perhaps, to uh, communicate it, which is odd for an engineer, I understand, but in order for our community of practice to get it and to move on with it, it's just the vestige of having 30 years plus in the business. The good news is, is Stephanie comes with the same and very good expertise. And General Williamson and uh, his as a successor and the cadre of senior people we have throughout our Army and instantiated uh, right here next to me and General Perna and General Weish and Alicia Adams, we have phenomenal skills. All we have to do is coalesce them, get them on the same path, and once the Army gets to an agreement, it moves out. So I'm sure that the Army is going to be cared for. Um, we're completing in the next couple weeks some very important things that we had been marching to since February. We already initiated this transition to sustainment. We've got uh, some acquisition reform on processes coming forward to the secretary and the chief. Um, those will tie up in a plan of action and milestones that the organization will continue to. And I expect some really good outcomes that I'll be able to watch. I'm very proud. Yeah, if I may pile on to that just uh, so I feel good when I walk out of here. Uh, I, I've had the privilege of working with Honorable McFarland for the last eight months uh, as the Army G4, and then I just recently transitioned to the Army Materiel Commander. Uh, and what I personally look for in senior leaders is confidence, commitment, and character. And, and all three of those attributes uh, uh, can be reflected in Ms. McFarland. Uh, and clearly, I consider myself as the logistics as the G4, her logistics expert. Uh, and what I appreciated most was her ability to define an end state uh, and then allow people around her to provide input. Uh, and uh, it's important for senior leaders to be able to take candor 
and, and adjust, and uh, never have I been um, more welcomed in conversation, whether I agreed or disagreed. Uh, and quite frankly, there was times we disagreed, right? But at the end of the day, we moved forward in what was best for the Army. So I just want to tell you I really appreciated your leadership. Yeah, that's uh, and mutual, I, as they say. And, uh, I, and as I transitioned over, you know, you flew down to my change of command and uh, offered the support, and I was very appreciative. Yeah, that's so. heartfelt. So we'll come to the third row here, and then we'll get back up front. And we do have time for a few more, so we should. Thank you. Dan Parsons with uh, Defense Daily. Um, for industry um, who may be concerned that the Army ASALT wants to focus on transition rather than acquisition, just sort of what's your message as far as where opportunities might lie over the next 10 years before major programs come down the pike, and what can industry do to help you on this transition? Oh, wonderful question. Geez, I couldn't appreciate that um, as much as I, I would have never thought that. <laughs> um, so the industry partners look for what their value op proposition is, and the great part of industry is it really answers what we ask for. And if we're a smart customer, we get what we want. And if we're not a smart customer, we may not get what we want. And so one of the biggest things that I'm trying to stress, uh, and not in the, just a team partnership with everyone, because the Army is the national security asset, is how do I create that environment that they understand how they create that business proposition, that value proposition, that addresses that full trade space. We have not been cogent. In certain cases, we're very deliberate and say, we want this reliability, we want this sustainability, this maintenance proposition, and we do it very well. I'll take JLTV as an example. I think it's a marvelous construct, and it took some great minds to pull that all together. I think we need to take in other areas we've done similar projects, but we need to have a consistent face to industry explaining why the trade space is what it is so that they can create that value proposition and can tell us why their product is different and measured uh, against another product that's being offered. That creates that business environment where innovation is brought back into the table. And that's where we have to improve, we, that being the government uh, and the Army to try to get that message about what is that trade space. Uh, I used the characterization of a refrigerator yesterday. Um, when you go out and buy a refrigerator, you do not expect to perform maintenance every five hours. You wouldn't buy it. You want it to operate, and when you get home, you hope that you have uh, what you want frozen, frozen, and what you want cool, cool. Um, I don't expect the progression to be there tomorrow, but I would like to build into the dynamic that we work and create with industry the concept that we need to achieve that for our warfighters, the ability for them to have a, a confidence and a, a real uh, capability to keep driving through as they need to without having to hesitate or, or harm or put themselves in harm's way as they operate on the valve space. Okay, we'll go back in the middle here, and I think we have time for one more after that. Hi, thank you. A uh, question again for Ms. McFarlane. Uh, you talked about the Rapid Capabilities Office, uh, but every few years in the DOD, uh, there's another Rapid Capabilities Office, um, whether it's Big Safari in the Air Force, or now we have the SCO. Um, so I'm just curious if you could 
elaborate a bit on what sets this office apart from anything that's been done before, and then what does the Army plan to do to prevent this from becoming sort of a vestigial office right. later on? So um, this is akin to the discussion that we've had about acquisition reform. Um, I think we've tried to reform the DOD 5,000, 5,000 times. It's remarkable. <laughs> it ends up back where it is in the terms of the practice. It's the process, right? So the reason why I thread that is for you as a needle, the RCO is about process and risk. Uh, I don't care if we call it FRED. The reason why we title it Rapid Capabilities Office is there is a, uh, a current and real need to have the ability to put risk into our equation because of the threat that risk is real. It's personal. And in order to get everybody galvanized to the understanding that this has to be rapid, that that risk has to be an acceptable uh, part of that equation, we've created uh, the Rapid Capabilities Office. Now what's intriguing, and perhaps there is a bit of personality in all of these things, I have been with the department long enough, since 84 in fact, to have been in many of the aforementioned uh, rapid communities. <laughs> so a uh, big safari, um, the Strategic Capabilities Office, the Air Force's Rapid Capabilities Office, uh, the Rapid Equipment Force, the uh, QRC. We have a lot of actually really agile tools that we use not just in the Army, but in the other services. The neat part about having an opportunity like I had to live at the OSD enterprise level as a practitioner for a while, at first I thought it would be hell and it turned out to be actually pretty interesting, um, is that I can see all those activities and actually extract some lessons learned, best practices, and provide that as an opportunity to the Army. So they've taken it to heart. To, to their credit, they're remarkable. when they get their mind around things, they can really move out. And they've done a really good job of interviewing and uh, um, having conversations with all of the communities, the test communities, the services, uh, understanding what is uh, the things that can make a rapid capability office really provide capabilities quicker. And so they focused in on some very particular precepts, if you would, for that, and then we'll grow from it. Uh, they took into account that, you know, if it's off the shelf, that's kind of the Rapid Equipping Forces toolkit and the Juons, uh, if you would. But if it's something that's high risk and it's an enterprise issue that really needs the senior leadership's direct focus, immediate focus, because you can't have everything important because then nothing's important. It's not a criticism of the acquisition workforce. We're very proud of them. But we want to know that we can actually see the progress and can pull in that decision on risk right to the senior leadership, those that would get held accountable for that issue, failure, or success. We want to pull that to that level. And we've chosen areas, PNT, electronic warfare, uh, you know, advanced protection systems, cyber, because we know and we have had quite a bit of dialogue in history that shows to us those are areas of concern at the Army enterprise level. And so the focus is along that area. Try to focus on a one to five year, get it out. Focus on the high priorities to the enterprise. Get our partnerships actually on the floor together, AMC, uh, the G2, all the folks that are immediate players of the senior leadership to advise 
the secretary and the chief on why and what that risk equation is that they can deliberate on. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, add on to that. What, I, what, I, what I'm excited about is the secretary and the chief of staff of the Army's uh, involvement and support in it. And I, I believe that is going to be the difference. Um, yeah, and so I, I think it's going to be powerful. Uh, the team approach that they're taking has been clear. Uh, their guidance has been clear, and we are moving out. Well, I'm not as old as Mrs. McDowell. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> I just no. Uh, in fact, I am older. No, no you're not. <laughs> uh, I Literally. don't. I don't know that. What, what I'll tell you is, I'm excited to see what I'm a part of. Uh, we are a part of. Uh, so it's powerful. I wouldn't say that there is something that you could deliberately uh, focus on in terms of trying to disparage some other services capability office because each of them are contributed to by their own culture and as you all are very familiar with each of these services have a deliberate and very distinct culture uh, we have the go army beat navy beat army go navy whatever all of them are very much and that's a healthy healthy opportunity because it creates that diversity when we go to battle it makes it even more challenging for an adversary to engage with um, for us, this seems to be a very good fit. We brought and tabled all the different methodologies. We put it in front of the senior leadership. We vetted it through all of the senior leadership. We got their commitment, and then we said, okay, let's start with this, and then we have actually put in place some things that allow us to learn. So if they're not working that great, we're going to have come back and regroup and reset. We have time for one last question, and nobody over here has had a chance, so we'll go over here. Hi, uh, James Drew from Aviation Week. Um, I'm just wondering uh, on your approach to uh, future vertical lists, sorry if you've already talked about it, but um, uh, how is the Army approaching, has the Army got the right acquisition strategy for future vertical lifts and introducing next generation rotorcraft systems when there's a bit of a mismatch between uh, the engine developments, you're going with ITEP first, but then a heavier class of aircraft also first? for future vertical lift. And uh, there's just some, some mis mismatch, I think, between the timing. And have you uh, heeded any of the uh, calls from industry to move faster on that acquisition? So I did want to stick to my uh, and our dialogue on sustaining. Uh, so I'm not going to give you uh, directly an answer because I'm going to ask you to talk to the community, and I believe they're here, and we will definitely get back with you on it. But I'll give you a general case that is related to this FAR. Inside of the Strategic Portfolio Analysis Review, we see upcoming threats uh, in aviation area as well as air defense, and you've seen those discussed. And within the resource constraints that we have, we're trying to build a dynamic that will allow us to mate up with the resources, even though they're spread the way they're spread, it's because of the priorities to allow us, however, to still achieve the end state when we think the threat's going to be realized. And that's what we've currently got in laid in uh, on the uh, future vertical lift in ITEP is against our resources. This is our best plan to achieve our capabilities when we believe the threat's going to be realized. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. That's all the time we have today. Thank you all. All right. Thank you.